Great decision-making underlies every type of success, be it financial, intellectual, in health, in relationships, and nobody embodies that better than the legendary Harvard professor, private equity mogul, and bridge champion Richard Zeckhauser. Today we're going to learn how to make better decisions from Richard Zeckhauser, who's dedicated his entire career to the practice and has influenced like tons and tons of people um, through his course at the Harvard Kennedy School called Frameworks for Analytic Policymaking or Analytic Frameworks for Policymaking. So across the world, there are like tons and tons of people who have taken this course and like have it's really like transformed their lives, like not just their careers, you know, it's helped them make like critical medical decisions about their family members, help them make better financial decisions, career decisions, uh, as well as decisions within their careers. So career decisions being like, what job should I take? And then within career decisions being like, okay, I'm employed as a financial, you know, analyst at a private equity firm. Should I recommend we buy company A or company B, you know? Or how much of a stake should we take in company A versus B? So, you know, as we've discussed in prior episodes, great decision-making is counterintuitive. Most people fail because our mental defaults prepare us incompletely for the complexity of modern life. Knowing when to detach, how to untangle the truth from our web of cognitive distortions can be the dis difference between riches and destitution, and even life and death, as we'll explore in one harrowing story from Professor Zeckhauser's personal life. So in this episode, we're going to explore maxims, techniques, and stories related to four broad categories of decision-making. So one is just thinking straight, like how do you untangle a complex situation? The second is tackling uncertainty. Like how do you make decisions in a world where you can't be sure how things are going to pan out and you may not even have all the options available to you that you think you have at any given time or you may have options beyond what you think you have there's a lot of um, information asymmetry to cut through in in modern life and definitely in startups how do you navigate that gracefully we'll also just talk about like the brass tacks of decision making and some like foundational principles that zeckhauser uh, advocates for and then some some frameworks for understanding policy and deciding you know which policy should be pursued and when we talk about policy in his case he, he taught at the kennedy school but he was also obviously in private equity so it, it's you know it's not necessarily just government policy right it can be like your company's policy it can be your personal policy um towards how you run your life so as an example one of the maxims related to policy that he talks about is like the fact that long division is the most important mathematical technique when it comes to policy. What's what's the benefit and what's the cost? Benefit divided by cost, right? And that's something you can apply to deciding what gym you should go to, to deciding where you should live, as well as deciding, you know, how you should approach border security or what a nuclear strategy you should take um, or anything else. So jumping into the principles related to thinking straight. The common theme there is simplify your situation enough that you can like gain some purchase on it. And then based on this like 
understanding of inputs and outputs, this like simplified model of your situation, go back to your more complex situations using the insights you gained. So one example is if you're having trouble figuring out how something works, go to an extreme case. And this is very important in like software design, for example. So you're designing a UI and your assumption is, oh yeah, you know, most users are gonna, most users are gonna write, you know, a sentence or two, right? And a typical comment thread will be three to five comments, right? Okay, what if there's a hundred comments or a thousand comments? And, and what if a user writes 10 paragraphs, right? Now you can impose a, a word limit, but you may not think to do that unless you go to the extreme case. Uh, on the technical side, it's like, will this scale to 10,000 users? Will this scale to 100,000 users? You know, like what happens if, um, I mean, here, here's a real example from when I worked on this uh, app for a an academic medical system. It's like a patient app. Um, <clears throat> there was a, a feature of the app where like you can manage medical care for your dependents, right? And what's the average number of kids that a family has in the U.S.? Like, let's say 2.2, right? I'm making it up, but probably not over five, right? Um, <clears throat> okay, so what's it? What would you guess is an extreme case, right? Eight, maybe eight. There was a case where there was a, a foster family who had something like 25 kids that they were managing at any given time. They were running like an industrial scale, like foster operation. And that extreme case totally broke the design um, because like we just didn't count on it, you know? So it, it's a powerful thing to think about, especially important when you're, when you're specking out the edge cases of a product. But in general, like take another concept like price elasticity, right? One of the easiest ways to understand price elasticity is to look at something like infinite inelasticity. What happens when elasticity is in, in, in inelasticity goes to infinity, right? What happens is you have a product that no matter what happens to its price, the demand just remains the same. So you can, you can look at this as something like a life-saving drug for a rare disorder. You, if you lower the price, more people aren't going to get the disorder. If you increase the price, the people with the disorder still want it as much. Um, now, whether they're able to afford it or not, that's a different matter. But as far as their demand, their demand stays constant. So the example that Zekhauser gives is like marginal propensity to consume, which is basically a concept where, well, let's look at it in the extreme. Like when you go to zero, which is the minimal, minimum marginal propensity to consume, if someone receives an extra $100 of income, they spend none of it. So that's a, that's a, the first principle as far as thinking straight and, and kind of a variation of that is when you're having trouble figuring a complex situation out, go to a simple case, you know? 
So again, this is true for um, for economic concepts for sure, right? Like, let's say you have you're you're thinking about supply and demand and how supply and demand interact. Um, think about you as an individual going to Starbucks. You go to Starbucks and you know, let's say you go every day, the price goes up fifty percent. How are you gonna respond? Maybe you go three times a week. You know, maybe the price goes up 100%. How are you going to respond now? You know, or, or think about this, like you have your favorite pastry, you go to a store and there are, there's one pastry and there's like five people who want it. And the store is like, you know what? We have to be fair about this. We're just going to give this to whoever wants it the most. So you guys can place bids and whoever has the highest bid gets it. How much are you going to pay for that versus in a scenario where there's five people and five pastries and that's it? Or there's five people and ten pastries, you know? Another good example of this is like in growth strategy. So figuring out how you're going to get a business to grow is like a very complicated and very important like piece of the puzzle for you know, running a startup uh, or being an early team member of a startup. Um, and one really good way to gain traction on it is to think through, okay, how is the acquisition of a new user going to yield the acquisition of additional users? So we have one new user. Let's say, um, let's say they're on an app like Twitter, right? Like Twitter's been in the news a lot. How is Twitter going to grow and get new users outside of Twitter? Well, you have a, a new user, they go on Twitter and they start tweeting. Some percentage of their tweets go viral and those viral tweets are showcased on other platforms. They're talked about on podcasts, they're embedded in news articles and blogs. Exposure to those tweets causes a certain percentage of customers to click through to Twitter. A certain percentage of the people that click through now convert to free tier users. Now those people tweet and the cycle continues, but this is a very like broad and complicated issue of like, how, how is usage going to yield additional usage? And it can be broken down to this kind of simple model of this like growth loop, um, that really gives you traction on, okay, how am I going to improve this now? Right? Like you, Previously, it's like this kind of morass of complexity. Now it's like, okay, here are the variables. We need to help users write better tweets. We need to promote the right tweets so that things go viral that then um, have influence beyond the platform. We need to figure out our conversion funnel from when someone clicks through onto the platform and sees one tweet um, to then help them create an account, right? And then you can kind of like demarcate each piece of this cycle and refine it and optimize it and improve it. And small changes to each piece yield outsized changes to your overall rate of growth. So that, that's a really good example of how just using simple models can really help you gain purchase on a complicated situation. So another one is like fitness, right? Like how do you get stronger? You know, there's so many ways you can get stronger. Like you can like, you know, you can use offset loads. Like the further a load is offset, it's hard to hold something far away from your body or close. 
right? You could do like all sorts of stuff with, um, you know, like 15,000 modalities of strength training. You could do like one-legged pistol squats without any weights. And that that's a massive amount of resistance. You could do um, whatever, box jumps. You, like there's so many ways to approach it. Or you can just simplify it down to this model of progressive resistance training. Each time I go in, I hold all variables constant, number of reps, number of sets, and I add some weight. Now, like, does that really like, you know, capture all of the complexity involved with getting stronger? No, it definitely doesn't. But what it does do is it gives you traction on a complex situation by creating a simple model to uh, understand the inputs and outputs and behavior of it. Another place you see this is like physics. You know, so if you were to go to an intro physics class and we're talking about whatever, like a projectile is fired in the air and you know the starting velocity and angle and like how long is it going to take to land, you know, um, something along those lines. Like, let's say you start factoring in like the shape of the object and wind resistance and like all, all this different real life complexity, um, you know, like what you're going to do is you're going to obscure the core behavior of the object that underlies all of that, which is why you use this like idealized model that doesn't factor those things in. It's not because it's not important to look at a complex reality. It's because you're trying to get at what's essential so that you have like um, the underlying conceptual structure in mind as you layer complexity onto it. So related to this is this maximum about like, don't take refuge in complexity. So, so many things in life are very, very complex and we have a tendency to <clears throat> say, you know what, that's just, that's too complicated and we'll never know the answer, right? So a good example of this is like moral questions. Um, is it right for us to Flintstone our product by creating bots to auto-populate the content, right? Like, so in the early days of like Reddit, you have a cold start problem. <clears throat> there's no one using the app. People come to the app and there's no content. So they're like, okay, there's nothing here for me. And they churn, they leave or they whatever bounce, right? Um, so how do you resolve that? Well, one way of resolving that is Flintstoning, which is like, you know, in the Flintstones, like the car, you you know, the guy, whatever, what's his name? Um, Fred Flintstone, he gets in his car and he kind of like holds the car up and like runs. So it kind of works roughly like the car, but in reality, there's no engine. There's there's nothing inside it. It's just, it's, you know, he's creating an impression that it's a car. So in the case of Reddit, the co-founders themselves went and like, you know, filled in content every single day uh, for days and days, like populated. In the case of eBay, they literally had bots like buy and sell, or sorry, PayPal. They had bots like buy and sell goods transacting with PayPal on eBay. Now there's an ethical question there, right? Now, is it right to trick your users into thinking this product is more active than it really is? And that's a complex question. So you could just throw your hands up and say, you know what, it's too complicated a question. We'll never know. And we're just going to do what we have to do, or we're not going to do anything. 
right? Like depending on your, your orientation towards these things, like there are people who are like, <clears throat> this is too complicated. Healthcare is too complicated. Finance is too complicated. We're, we can't start a startup in these domains. It's just too hard. It's just too complicated. And on the flip side, there are folks who are like, well, we're just going to throw our hands up and we're going to do what, what we got to do and we're just going to be cowboys about it. But in the middle, there's a place where it's like, we're going to try to simplify it. We're going to try to make a reasoned, analytical, you know, approach to this. And we may not be perfectly successful, but we're at least going to try to grapple with the complexity through analysis and reason to the best of our ability. Um, and I think with this too, especially for moral questions, a good way to go is consider the moral intuitions that are, you know, speaking to you when you think of a, a given situation, right? So when you're talking about eBay or like PayPal, sorry, because PayPal was initially created for eBay power sellers of, um, um, I believe, Beanie Babies. Um, there's there's two moral intuitions that come to mind for me. Okay, one is deception, right? So it's like deception is wrong. Um, and another moral intuition that comes to mind is we have something genuinely helpful that can benefit these users but we don't have the social proof and we don't have the um, usage yet for people to trust that it's going to be useful. And if we don't do something about this, we're not going to be able to provide that value to our users, right? And this obviously gets very, very complicated, but I think especially in a business context, um, and especially in this business context, I think they were right to do what they did, you know? Because you also have to think about like, what's the harm? Because that's another important moral, moral intuition is like, what, who is being harmed by the actions you're taking? So compare that to Theranos, right? Who in some ways on the surface level, they were doing a similar thing. They had this idea for a product. It was in, you know, they were trying to figure it out. But in the meantime, they were just using traditional blood analysis machines and they were just trying to flintstone it right what's the difference well the difference is they were providing inaccurate results they didn't have people properly trained to even use the like old style machines that they were using they were actively lying to customers about like a core piece of their value prop you know like paypal wasn't telling customers hey like um you're like I don't know. I, I guess like, okay, let's take Reddit as an example, right? Reddit isn't, isn't saying that, that most of the usage is just the co-founders. Like that isn't like a core piece of their value prop where they're being deceptive, right? Like the value prop is you're going to go there, you're going to feel a sense of community and be engaged. Whether, whether it's with the co-founders or not is like irrelevant. Whereas for Theranos, like the value prop is you're going to be able to run like this expansive set of tests with like enterprise grade accuracy using this new machine. And they didn't have the new machine and they didn't have the accuracy, which is a huge piece of it. And then another piece of it too is like the harm, right? There's real harm from that, which is why I also think like the calculus changes whether you're in a private or public context. In a public context, you're using like coercive force. So for example, as a public health professional, you're like, you know, 
I really want um, people to be well. I don't want people to get sick. I don't want them to die. We have this vaccine and I'm just going to like sand over the rough edges and I'm just going to like present a rosier picture than is true because I just want people to buy in. What makes that wrong, I believe, and what makes Reddit and PayPal's uh, Flintstoning okay is the potential for real physical harm. That's one. And the second is the fact that you're a coercive organ of the state and you're using like force to mandate people behave a certain way and you're using the weight of your authority to push people into into things uh, against their will. Whereas as, as PayPal, you have no authority in, in the early days. Like nobody cares about you. Um, there is very little potential harm present. Like for example, if you miscode the bot and you accidentally, you know, um, buy something from a, a seller using the bot, using PayPal, and the person doesn't get their money, you just send them the money and it's all good, you know? Whereas if you, you know, manipulate someone into taking a medical treatment in the case of Theranos or in the case of the government, um, and especially in the case of the government because they're mandating things, the the burden of... The, the level of certitude and confidence you have has to be much, much higher. And your obligation to be honest and let people make their own decisions is also much, much higher. But anyway... Let us talk about the next maxim here, which is... Oh, actually, I have one more thing to say about this uh, don't take refuge in complexity. Zeckhauser, for his, like, senior fellows that come to the Kennedy School, has a recommendation, which is, like, pick a small but important subtopic and say something interesting about it. So this is a good, good example of, like, okay, starting a healthcare startup is really hard. It's really hard to have like an AI doctor that like diagnoses, you know, a, a range of ailments remotely from your home for a fraction of the price. Okay, fine, fine. What ailment can be easily computationally diagnosed and remotely treated? Is there one ailment or one variant of an ailment that you can do this with? Right? What is a tiny piece of the puzzle that's a step in the right direction? that you can gain traction on and do something meaningful with, right? Like there's things that are extremely hard to diagnose, but let's say for example, you, you know, use gait analysis to diagnose like foot issues, right? Or you use like computer vision to diagnose like rashes, right? Or like retinal issues. Like there might be some tiny piece of the puzzle that you can gain traction on and, and actually tackle right now. Um, so, so it's something to think about. Um, and with that, let us talk about an important maxim here of everyday analogs. So, I mean, with this one, really, we've talked about it, right? I mean, when, when you're reducing things to well, actually, not, not quite, because in the physics case, if you're taking a complex situation, like, what happens if you fire, you know, a, a, a projectile, right? Like, and it goes a certain distance, how far is it going to go based on the initial velocity and angle? Okay, 
are you firing a t-shirt gun? Are you firing a cannon? Are you firing a rifle? Like, what shape? What's the wind resistance? What's the, like, inertia? Like, all these different questions, right? Um, but the answer to that is to simplify, but the thing you simplify to is not necessarily an everyday analog. Um, however, another technique is to simplify, instead of towards idealization, simplify towards familiarity. And you want to be careful about doing this because this is a, a cognitive bias too. Is like when people are confronted with a hard question to answer, they tend to substitute a, an easier question and answer that instead. So you want to be aware that you're doing this and be intentional and careful about doing it. But it's still like important to consider, you know. So for example, you're thinking through like, let's say some kind of like investment decision. You're, you're, you're debating whether you want to, you know, build product A or product B, right? Well, in everyday life, you might think about like, again, what kind of like, which gym, gym membership should, should I buy? Like, what's the benefit? What's the cost, right? Simple calculus, but it's, it's a, it's a good way to just assess like, at, at the base level, fundamentally, like, what what is the better decision? And it, it can be translated to more complicated situations. Now, the calculus of cost and benefit gets more complicated. But the everyday analogy kind of helps you understand, again, the levers you can pull and, like, what the metrics might be that you're looking for, you know? So the second, like, broad set of maxims that Zekhauser talks about are related to tackling uncertainty. So there's this guy called uh, Jason Furman, who was like a top economic advisor to Obama and was uh, a Kennedy School, you know, faculty member. And when he was at the White House, he, he recalls that the best po political and legislative aides had only two possible probabilities for events occurring zero and one one of the top ones would often say i was in congress for years and i can tell you there's no chance that this will be passed weeks before it passed or in all my decades in washington attaching such and such to the bill has never failed to get it passed and then it fails to be passed so this is a very common um phenomenon is people think in very black and white terms and actually here's something uh for you guys is like Keep an ear out for this. Like, listen, when you're listening to podcasts, when you're listening to the news, listen to how certain people are. Listen to how, like, when, when they say things like, there's a 100% chance, right? Or like, this is just simple. This is the answer, right? Pay public school teachers more. If we pay them more, our academic standards will improve. Okay, maybe. Like, is that a 100% guarantee? Is that true everywhere? Is that true in the aggregate? How true is that? Is there any chance that's not true? Right? Like, you know, we tend to think this way. So this is kind of a goofy example, but earlier today I was talking to my fiance and I was telling her about like, you know, this old situation with like Rachel Dolezal, who was like this NAACP official who was kind of like, pretending to be black, but was actually white. And then she was embroiled in scandal over it. And my fiance was like, How, do you know that's true? And the reality is like, 
I didn't cross check it. I didn't look at, you know, four different sources. I didn't gauge the like validity of the sources. I haven't, you know, figured out like what exactly happened. How did, how was this determined? You know, how do we know? Um, and, and the reality of the matter is like, it's, it's not about whether she did or didn't do what they say she did. It's about the fact that I had a source that I trust say it and I believed it. And now I'm sharing it with her, right? Like we tend to be credulous by default and we tend to think in black and white, like she did it or she didn't do it. When in reality, like I, unless I look it up and I really dig into it, I cannot say with 100% certainty that things played out the way I think they did, you know? I could say with a great degree of certainty, maybe, but not 100%. So when it comes to probability, there's there's just a host of biases around it. One is the hindsight bias, which is like a low probability event occurs, like Trump gets elected. And all of a sudden, everyone's like, oh, I knew that would happen, right? And actually, this is a very dangerous tendency because it causes us to overestimate how good we are at thinking probabilistically and it doesn't help us make better decisions in the future. So you want to be really careful about this. But um, basically like what I'd like you to take away from this is there is a guarantee that high severity, low probability events will happen. We just don't know which ones. And we need to be like aware that the world is a very uncertain place. And we need to factor in the probabilistic nature of things to our analysis, to our thinking, to our lives and careers. And an example of um, an example that'll help you realize how bad you are at estimating uncertainty is I'm just going to ask you like, let's say five questions, okay? And I want you to just write down your 1% surprise point, your best guess, and your 99% surprise point. So your 1% surprise point is like where you would be shocked if, or or your 1% surprise point is like, there's a 1% chance the number is lower than this. And your 99% surprise point is like, you're 99% confident that the number isn't greater than this. And your best guess is just your best guess. So what is the birth rate in Andorra, or what was the birth rate in Andorra in 2020 per 1,000 population? What's the air distance from Amsterdam to Atlanta in kilometers? What's the number of votes Hillary Clinton got in the 2016 presidential election from voters in the state of Alabama? What's the total area of Afghanistan? What is the number or what was the number of McDonald's restaurants in the United States in 2020? Don't look those up. Just like write down, take a note on your phone or something of what your guesses are for those. So let me tell you, I'll just give you a second, you know, feel free to pause and and look at that. And I will tell you the uh, answer. Let me dig it up. So the answer is, the birth rate in Andorra in 2020 per 1,000 population was seven births um, out of 1,000. The air distance from Amsterdam to Atlanta in kilometers was 7,082. 
The number of votes Hillary Clinton got in the 2016 U.S. presidential election from voters in the state of Alabama was 729,547. The total area of of Afghanistan in square kilometers was 652,230. And the number of McDonald's locations in the United States in 2020 was 13,226. So, to, to, like, notice how many of those you got right and how many of those you got wrong. It's pretty fascinating. So, so the general lesson there is, like, think probabilistically about the world. And we've talked about this in, like, thinking in bets and in, in other um, decision science-related episodes. But this will really like transform your life, honestly. Like, you know, um, it's transformed like so many decisions that I've made. Um, and it's just transformed the way I approach things and think about things. Um, and once you start to think like this, you'll notice like the extent to which people don't and how much certitude people have uh, and how undue it is to have that much certitude. So, for example, like before Trump was elected, uh, 538 gave gave him a 29% chance of winning. Now, people were aware of that, but like people were completely stunned when he was elected. But in reality, what 29% chance means is 29 out of 100 times that you re-ran that election, Donald Trump would be elected. You know, like if there's a 29% chance of rain, you're probably going to bring an umbrella. You know, and and an important piece of this is like, subjective probabilities we've talked about this a little bit in the past too so i won't get too deep into it but the idea is like you know assign probabilities to things even if you don't have a perfect analytical basis for it because it helps you to notice how uncertain you are and it helps you to not think in black terms of black and white the point isn't to like have a perfectly rigorous like percentage chance for every outcome the point is to have a sense of your relative certainty of different events happening so for example like from a pure like injury risk perspective what is the chance that i get mugged and injured versus what is the chance that i do wrestling or judo and get injured well, I would say there is a 90% chance that I get moderately injured um, doing judo. And I would say that the rate of people getting mugged in my area is, is so low that there's probably less than a 1% chance of me getting moderately injured in a mugging. What's the chance that I get severely injured doing judo or wrestling? Well, I would say... 10% chance and catastrophically injured, I would say two and a half, five percent chance compared to muggings, right? Now, does that mean you shouldn't do judo or, or wrestle? No, that's not what it means. What it means is if you're doing it as a method of risk mitigation for physical harm, it's not an intelligent approach to that, perhaps. Right? So and, and what are those probabilities based on? Well, for judo, I can go and look it up, right? And for, same for, for muggings. 
But even before I look it up, I already have a sense of like the relative likelihood of these things. Um, so, so the key process here is to look at the data you have, subjective and objective, qualitative and quantitative, and assign subjective probabilities to different outcomes. And then update them based on like new information that you gain. So uh, a really poignant example of this is um, when, actually we'll, we'll, we'll cross that bridge later. First, I just wanna talk about real quick. Um, when you are trying to think probabilistically, factor in the decisions of others as well as data to the decision you're making. Now. This is a little little dangerous, right? Like same as like creating like a simplified model of a complex situation. Like when you do that, I mean you're doing something that is that resembles a cognitive bias, but you're doing it intentionally in a controlled manner while being aware that you're doing it, right? Like same thing here. There is such a thing as like social contagion. There is such a thing as conformity, and it's a very heavy influence on our behavior. There is such a thing as authority that heavily sways our behavior, okay? So be careful about using the decisions of other people, especially authority figures, um, as evidence and calibrate appropriately with this, okay? But there's a big difference between doing it unconsciously and doing it intentionally and factoring it in, right? So something to think about there. Another interesting thing about uncertainty is just how much it supports the status quo bias. So the status quo bias is like, the TV is too quiet. It would be objectively better if it was louder, but you're sitting there and you're like, I'm not gonna go turn it down because it's like, you know, it's fine, right? So. Part of status quo bias is like, oh, stuff that's too small to bother changing. But another aspect is like uncertainty as well. So a good example here is like, there's a personal example and there's a company example. Like the personal example is, I am pretty happy with my job. I earn a pretty good amount of money. I have pretty good benefits and it's good to go. I could get a new job, but it's not guaranteed that I'll get a better job there is a probability that I'll get a better job and the expected value of getting like a new job is higher than the expected value of staying in my current job. Why not make the jump? Well, there's a lot of reasons why not, but people have a tendency not to. Um, and actually, interestingly, you see a, a gender difference here too, where men tend to switch jobs more than women. Um, and women take a, a a salary penalty from that. Um, and I think partially it's to do with relationships. Um, and there's other factors as well, but you know, so, something to, something to just keep in mind here is like, be, be careful about 
undervaluing uncertain options that are likely to improve your circumstances. Now, there is such a thing as like action bias too, which you see in the medical profession, you see in politics, you see in various places. You also see uh, in corporations, right? Where something is fine and people take action just to just to do something. You saw this heavily in COVID to like horrible effect overall, um, where people were like, we have to close all the parks. We have to, you know, pen people up inside. We have to, you know, ventilate. We, ha- we just have to do all these things, right? And in the medical space, you see people undergoing unnecessary medical procedures all the time. And it's just a desire for doing something that kind of propels that. Uh, and sometimes it's optics and sometimes it's, again, discomfort with uncertainty. If we do nothing, the probability might be higher that things will turn out fine. But, you know, if we do something, we might have more certainty around the types of outcomes we can expect. Or we might feel more certain. We might feel in control. So it's 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 a subtle thing. It, it goes both ways. And you have to be careful. It's like in, in the um, business case, like, Definitely in terms of design, people will make drastic redesigns. Um, and sometimes the design was fine. And like the result is much worse. You know, like there are simple designs that have continued to do well, like for years and years and years without almost any modification. You know, you see that in um, the um, the overall product design of like the Porsche 911. Or you see that in the UI design of Craigslist, right? Or Hacker News. Like, we they could do a dramatic redesign, but the reality of the matter is, unless it's warranted, unless there's evidence that indicates there is value that could be derived from it, significant value, you don't need to do anything. Just let it be the way it is. So the brass tacks of decision-making. So we talked about resulting um, in the uh, Thinking in Bets episode. Sometimes good decisions have bad outcomes. That doesn't make them retroactively bad decisions. You drive drunk, you survive. Driving drunk was still a bad decision, even though there was a good outcome. You drive sober, you get killed by a drunk driver. Driving sober was still a good decision. Uh, Very important to keep in mind in highly probabilistic professions too. So startups, great example. Like With the evidence that you have, you opt to build, you know, product A versus product B. You've done your validation like we talked about last time. You've climbed the ladder of validation from broad to narrow. You've done targeted validation. Your your validation approach has gotten more involved and more expensive and now you're building the product and it doesn't work out the way you want it to. If you were to go back with the information you had and you you would make the same decision and another, you know, intelligent actor given the information you had would say hey this decision was reasonable it was a good decision and that doesn't change because the outcome was bad and actually it's very relevant to the world of startups because if you have a startup and you fail intelligently it's actually not bad for your career it still adds a lot of value to like your skill set and your overall experience what you want to do is not fail stupidly you know, you, you want people to be able to say, hey, I understand why these decisions decisions were made and the thought process makes sense. And there was like a rhyme or reason to the approach, you know? 
Now, this is especially true when there are times of crisis and things just are really going bad. So you're, you're, you know, in a compromising medical situation and you, um, you have a choice between like two procedures, both are invasive, both are painful. Let's say it's like chemotherapy or having a tumor like surgically removed. Now, like both have significant chances of like negative outcomes, but that's, that's the situation you're in. And like, you have to make the best decision you can and the decision quality, like you might make a perfect decision and still have a bad outcome just because of the nature of the options you have built. Yeah, so uh, an example from uh, Richard Selzer's personal life with this is like, his wife, Sally, got a diagnosis of stage three breast cancer. There were no attractive options for treatment. Everything just seemed arduous and had a significant chance of death attached to it. And she had eight positive nodes. If she had 10 positive nodes, she'd be eligible for a randomized controlled trial, which would give her um, high dose chemo chemotherapy paired with a bone marrow transplant. Um, Richard, just to expand options, asked the doctor to recount the nodes. Turned out to be 11 and not eight. Some were clustered together. So the raised count was bad news, but it made Sally eligible for the trial, which, which illustrates an important decision-making principle is like, if you don't like the options you're presented with, try to create new options. Chances are there are options on the table that you haven't considered or that like um, are not apparent right away. So her doctors observed, we don't like to do bone marrow transplants since they have a 4% chance of mortality. And then Richard and Sally asked, you know, what gain does the bone marrow transplant offer in survival probability, assuming that the person survives the treatment? So the doctor said, we don't know. And the results are thus far confidential. Richard pushes Sally's doctors further and widely reads the medical literature and including the application for the trial and then goes and consults with oncologists at multiple institutions, see gathering evidence, gathering as much evidence as he can. And then he concludes that the long-term survival gain was 10% or more. Now they learned three more things. An expert from Columbia has written an article based on limited data that presents a graph suggesting that bone marrow transplants would provide better long-term survival, like far past the five-year mortality threshold used in other studies. Sally's hospital has had 0% treatment fatality up to that point, not the 4% stated officially. And the third thing is the sister of the statistician on the trial recently received a bone marrow transplant for breast cancer. So given all this information, Richard and Sally decide that they're going to apply for the trial. She did and was randomized to the bone marrow transplant treatment. And it was awful and put Sally, you know, really close to death. But 20 years later, her oncologist says, hey, the benefits were seen long after the treatment. She's totally healthy now. And obviously they're lucky, but what was extraordinary about this is the fact that Richard maintained his composure and even in the face of a really horrible personal tra tra tragedy, where it's easy to retreat to your base instincts, he brought his analytical skills to bear to like make the best decision he can. Now, if he did this and the outcome was bad, it would still be a good decision. And like what he said is, 
I've been training for this decision my entire life. Now, there's a lot more to this book, but I have to take my dog to a meet and greet for dog sitting. And maybe we'll do a, a second part, but I think what we've already talked about has, has provided hopefully some significant value to you guys. I know it has to me. Um, and if you're into it, if you buy it, if you don't buy it, talk to us, let us know at ay0n underscore b on Twitter. Uh, let us know which episodes you like and don't like, you know, we can double down on the ones you like and, you know, we'll try to give you what you want. We'll try to give you a little bit of what you need and we hope you're enjoying the podcast and we'll talk to you later. Thank you.